Welcome back to the ITK podcast. I'm UK and let's get right into the show. It's January 15th, 1970 at Dodan Barracks, Lagos. Gowon was officially there to accept the formal surrender of Lieutenant Colonel Effion. Gowon had garnered a reputation for being a straight shooter who believed in the oneness of Nigeria and was willing to make unpopular decisions to make sure the country remained united. We are here to formally accept the surrender of the Biafran forces and to signal the end of this conflict. There is no victor and no vanquished here. We are going to reabsorb the Igbos into the Nigerian society and there will be no backlash on you. We as leaders need to demonstrate to our country people that we are all brothers. All this is good to hear, replies Lieutenant Colonel F. Young. And I hope your words are actually followed through by our Nigerian brothers. And we can put the events of the past three years behind us. He stretches his hands for a handshake. Certainly. F. Young, you need not be worried. Both men shake hands warmly and salute each other. Go on being so welcoming at the surrender was to the dismay of people such as Brigadier Ogwemudia was very unhappy that Colonel Effiong and other Biafran soldiers, whom he considered to be treasonous rebels, were not being tried, or rather granted amnesty by Gowon. He advocated for them to be dealt with severely after they had waved the white flag. They were being given leeway to be reabsorbed into the society instead of being given Nuremberg-style tribunals for such acts of rebellion. But true to his words, Gowon made sure that they were reabsorbed and civilians who fled to Biafra were also reinstated to their jobs they had before the Civil War. It was a popular policy that Gowon had initiated, which was the no victor, no vanquished policy. However, if you're familiar with the Nigerian system, you know things work very differently in real life. While Gowon pushed his no victor, no vanquished policy and his reconciliation, reconstruction, and rehabilitation policy, the three R's. The actions of his government seemed contradictory. The federal military government issued the Special Provisions Decree Number 46 of 1970, which summarily dismissed or retired many of the Igbo officers who fought for Biafra in the war. This went against the assurance made by Gowon that all officers will be reabsorbed back into the positions they occupied before the war. Next came the Banking Obligations Decree of 1970, which empowered the government to seize funds from accounts in eastern Nigeria that were actively used during the war. In an attempt to soften this harsh decree, Chief Obafemi Awolowo pushed for some form of compensation to people from eastern Nigeria who had their funds seized by the government. The compensation was made out to the tune of measly £20 each. It didn't matter whether you had a million pounds, a hundred pounds, or one pound in your account prior to the war. The government simply gave you 20 pounds. This of course came with a caveat. You had to prove with records that you had a bank account. However, since Eastern Nigeria was devastated during the war, 
banking records were destroyed, which meant a lot of people didn't even receive the £20 compensation. Finally, the abandoned property policy saw Igbos, primarily those who fled Port Harcourt, return after the war to discover that their housing properties had been seized by the government with no subsequent compensation. The peaceful reintegration of the Biafran rebels back into the country gave Gowon plaudits both within and outside the country. The end of the war also came at a very wonderful time for Nigeria because the oil boom of the 70s had arrived. This oil boom led to a massive financial windfall for the country. Nigeria had also become strategically important during the Arab oil embargo on the United States as it did not join in the embargo and went ahead to become the second largest supplier of crude oil to the United States. The newly found wealth inspired the federal military government to embark on a series of unprecedented and grandiose developmental constructions to rapidly modernize Nigeria. City topographies were transformed with the construction of new multi-lane highways, flyovers, bridges, hospitals, schools, universities, dams, factories, hotels, army barracks, and office complexes. It's easy to say that the good times were here. Go on after the war went about making state visits to countries that had supported Nigeria during the war. During the Cold War era, Nigeria's foreign policy was a non-aligned approach. This meant the country was aligned neither with the US or the Soviets. This is what led to the development of the phrase third world. First world countries were those allied with or under the influence of the United States. So countries like Britain or France. Second world countries were those under the influence of Soviet Russia, like Bulgaria and Yugoslavia. Third world countries were those that were either neutral or non-aligned with either side. Examples were India, much of West Africa, and Sweden. Obviously, after the Cold War, the meaning of these terms have changed, and they now refer to the economic development of countries. Goa made a state visit to Russia to thank them for their support during the Civil War. This visit, of course, alarmed the West. While in Moscow, the Russians tried to negotiate deals to develop the steel industry in the country in return for access to resources. Goan made promises that were never followed up on. During this period, Goan also mended the country's relationship with China, despite the fact China backed the Biafran secession efforts. While he may have been making efforts to build relationships with communist states, Goan was still very much an Anglophile who believed in having a strong relationship with Great Britain. This was evident in the fact Britain was comfortably Nigeria's biggest trading partner. They were also the first country Goan made an official state visit to after the war. Moving past the relationships with the West and the Soviets, the cornerstone of Goan's foreign policy was Nigeria's relationship with other African states. This was primarily motivated by the fact that the only African countries that backed the Biafran cause were the white minority-ruled countries of Namibia, Rhodesia, and South Africa. Gowon felt this was an attempt by them to promote instability in black-ruled African countries, distract from the issues they had going on. This led to efforts by the Gowon administration to promote a stronger OAU and the collaboration with Togo to establish the Economic Community of West African States 
1975. The financial windfall from the crude oil came with its issues. What do you think happens when you take a country with weak civil institutions and inject a huge amount of money into it? Rampant corruption everywhere. The Nigerian government with their extravagant plans and poor planning habits misappropriated the massive funds that were coming their way. An example of this would be the construction of public infrastructure. They were ordering such a massive amount of cement and did not have the capacity at the Lagos port to receive them. This created a lot of backlogs at the Lagos port because over 400 ships were battling for docking space, which meant for a brief moment in the 70s, Nigeria was the largest importer of cement in the world. A lot of ships would have to wait for as long as a year to dock which caused a lot of the cement to be unusable by the time they were offloaded. Nigerian authorities went ahead to import cranes from the UK to assist in the offloading of the products. But without the expertise to help operate these cranes, they too were left to rust and waste. Some individuals saw an opportunity with this situation and created schemes to collect demurrage fees by keeping their ships in line without any genuine product in them thereby worsening the congestion. The government that was seemingly determined to find elaborate ways to squander its new wealth didn't carry out any intrinsic investigations and continued to pay hefty sums. The influx of this newfound wealth created the paradox of a rich country with poor people. As the general populace grew impatient, the government sought new ways to calm their nerves. So in January of 1975, the federal military government decided to award public sector employees tax-free pay increments above 100%, which were backdated to give more cushion. The government justified this action as them implementing the recommendation of the Udoji Commission. For more context, the 1972 Udoji Public Service Review Commission was set up to examine the organization structure and management of public services. The commission submitted its report in 1972, recommending several courses of action for the government. These included adopting a result-oriented management style, promotions being based on merit and not seniority, a unified structure being implemented, and public sector compensation being very close to private sector compensation. The federal government tossed aside every recommendation except the one on increasing salaries. This move had an entirely different outcome from what they had intended. Traders observed the influx of cash and raised the prices for goods and the inflation rates in the nation rose at an unprecedented rate. Infrastructure constructed during this period kept failing due to the poor construction methods used or low quality raw materials being used. Go on with a charming and widely accepted old Jack personality enjoyed nationwide popularity as people loved him for his calmness and his reception of peace. So even as the government was clearly misappropriating funds and as corruption grew within the ranks, criticism from outside the regime tended to be directed not at him personally, but at his administrators. Within the military though, some officers expected Gowon to re-energize his regime by replacing the old governors with freshly motivated officers from the lower echelons of the military ranks. 
This was met with resistance from the sitting governors. Their logic was that if it was time for them to go, then Gowon was to go with them. And they expressed their stance as laudably as they could at every opportunity they got. In October 1975, Gowon announced that he would be changing hands and replacing the military governors by the end of the year in order for them to have the opportunity to shake hands with Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom as she was to visit Nigeria sometime before the end of the year. The upper echelon of the officer corps became extremely politicized and many senior officers became de facto politicians. They saw the humongous amount of wealth politicized officers were amassing and wanted in on the action. Some of whom were inaugurated, including Major General Hassan Katsina as Commissioner for Establishments, Brigadier Lushe Gobasanjo as the Commissioner for Works, Brigadier Muritala Mohammed as Commissioner for Communications, and Major General Emmanuel Eyoekbo as the Commissioner for Agriculture and Natural Resources. At this point, because of the grave power and wealth bestowed upon them, the military continuously saw themselves as higher than civilians, and the term bloody civilians was coined and became increasingly popular. The civilian perception of the military also began to change, and the common civilian complaint was that certain military officers were behaving as if military rule was supposed to be permanent and forgot that military rule was an aberration standing in place until a legitimate democratic rule could be re-established. When the civil war ended in 1970, Gowon had promised Nigeria would return to civil democratic rule in 1976. However, this promise was flouted on a rain-soaked Independence Day parade on October 1974, when Gowon indefinitely postponed the return to democracy, causing a pandemonium within the country. People who expected to return to democratic rule and wanted the incumbent regime to relinquish control of governance were disappointed and this also affected the image of Gowon as a trustworthy and incorruptible man. The massive concentration of wealth at the federal level made political activity a tremendous opportunity for amassing wealth. Police and military officers, instead of focusing on their proper duties, had other ambitions to make money and not serve the nation. People began joining the National Defense Academy, inspired by the hopes of growing in ranks and someday reaching the point of attaining a political post so they could enrich themselves. Certain officers already in the ranks even favored the idea of transforming Gowon from military head of state to the position of executive president so that they in turn could keep their power and control. This proposal was supported even by former President Namdi Azikiwe, who seemed to have accepted the inevitability of military entrenchment in politics. Brigadier Bisala also remarked in his speech once that if the country's constitution allowed an army civilian regime, the members of the armed forces would participate in future governments. However, when there is no credible democratic alternative, Nigerian military regimes are inherently unstable and ironically more susceptible to a coup as they can only be replaced by intra-military revolts. At this point, all of the army officers had evolved from the political and unassuming soldiers of the 1950s and 60s 
into immensely confident and powerful men with large followings. Their ever-decreasing influence over Goan made them uneasy, and they felt disenfranchised for their exclusion from the political decision-making process. There are those who lost sight of the charm of General Yakubu Goan, and their personal ambition had grown, as well as their personal wealth, influence, and private armies. One of such officers was Brigadier Muritala Mohammed. Muritala had always been a thorn in the side of Goan. He had the latitude to criticize Goan with little to no consequence, as he was one of the key figures who had led the revolt that catapulted Goan to office and felt that he had been ostracized by Goan in recent times and wasn't pleased about it. In July 1975, the head of police special branch, MD Yusuf, had informed Brigadier Alicia Gobasanjo about a coup plot he had just gotten intel on. Yusuf also informed Gowon of this plot, but Gowon was unsure if he was being fed wrong information to throw him off his game ahead of his visit to Uganda for the OAU summit. Gowon proceeded to making his trip to Uganda for the summit and was completely unprepared for what was to come next. Exercise Sunstroke was a major 10-day field exercise conducted by Colonel Joe Garba's brigade in 1975. The exercise was essentially a war games rehearsal and featured cross-country foot marching and vehicular movements from Lagos to Lanlate in the western states. And although the commanding officer of the exercise, Brigadier Godwin Ali, presided over the post-exercise analysis, the exercise principal umpires were Colonel Abubakar Waziri, Lieutenant Colonel Ibrahim Babangida, and Lieutenant Colonel Shehu Yaradoa. The involvement of these colonels in exercise sunstroke and in the coup plot against Goan led other exercise participants to suspect that exercise sunstroke was essentially a rehearsal for the coup against Goan. Although northern soldiers were united in their pogrom against Igbos in 1966, in the following decade, northern soldiers in the mid and upper echelons of the army had fractionalized into pro-Goan and pro-Murital Mohammed camps because their varying styles of leadership suited people's ambitions differently. In the pro-Goan camp were minorities from the Middle Belt, such as Colonel Walbe and Brigadier Martin Adamu, and in the latter camp were Muslim soldiers from the far north, such as Lieutenant Colonel Muhammadu Buhari, Lieutenant Colonel Shehu Musa Yardwa, and Lieutenant Colonel Ibrahim Babangida. Brigadier Muritala Mohammed was the most charismatic northern officer in the Nigerian army. It would have been impossible to stage a coup and govern without his consent, given the loyal following he had in the army. So Jogarba and Shehu Yaradwa went to Muritala's Lagos house at number 6, 2nd Avenue in Ikoi, to ask for his cooperation. When they arrived, they found Muritala characteristically sitting under the almond tree in his compound. He was listening to an audio cassette tape of Quranic verses while reciting the verses intensely. They both struggled with what exactly to say to him to convince him to back them in their plot. Naigo Toku, me have tried. I don't already carry us enter the compound now, now your turn to talk. He says, showing how obviously intimidated he was by Muritala. Yaradwa nods reluctantly in agreement. Okay, no problem. I'll do the talking. But please back me up whenever you feel like I'm getting cold feet. 
Yaradwa did most of the talking, as he had a closer relationship with Muritawa than Garba. He laid out their case against Gowon and continued to explain that the Gowon administration was tarnishing the military's prestige. Therefore, the colonels had decided to depose Gowon and have Muritala take Gowon's place. Garba interjected to add a few words of support. Muritala agreed with the officers but stated that if a coup was to take place, he would want it to be a bloodless coup before he supports. He said he had seen enough bloodshed during his time and that he will not actively participate but he promised to protect them if anything were to go wrong with their coup attempt. Then he ended the meeting and continued playing the tape he was listening to. There was an overnight raid instigated by Garba at Colonel Walbe's residence where he asked Walbe to read the coup speech and threatened his family if he refused. Announcing Gowon's deposal was a tough pill to swallow as nine years earlier, he had nominated Gowon to become head of state and remained loyal to him. Gowon's absence from Nigeria made it a little bit less shameful for his loyalists who had defected and joined the coup plotters. By 2 a.m., soldiers surrounded the Lagos airport, blocked all routes to the airport and suspended all Nigerian Airways flights. External communications were also severed and while Gowon was still in Uganda, he was overthrown in a military coup announced by Joseph Garba. Speaking with a tense and emotional voice, Garba announced in a dawn broadcast that Gowon had been overthrown in a bloodless coup with no physical casualties. News of the coup found its way to the OAU conference in Uganda, and the controversial leader of Uganda, Idi Amin, broke the news to Yakubu Gowon, who accepted his fate with grace and waited for the conference to be over before approaching the press and delivering a hearty speech. That's it for this week's episode. Special thanks to Dose Cake for writing this episode and big thanks to Ayo and Solomon for voicing. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast fix. Follow the podcast so you can get your weekly updates. If you have any topics, events, or people you would like to see covered, hit me up on Twitter at ITK underscore podcast or on Instagram at ITK underscore podcast. I'm UK and this has been the ITK podcast. Mm-hmm.